Hello and welcome to the Almost Enlightened Podcast, a show about whatever I want. We're back to regular programming after three recent off-the-cuff episodes, although I'm inclined to record a few more of those kinds of episodes in the future as a way of exploring life from a more spontaneous perspective. But because I love to learn so much, today's episode follows the habitual format of research, observation, and theorizing, all with the intent of exploring and sharing energy in the spirit of love. And just for fun, I'd like to do a shout out today to a new friend that I've just made. My new friend is author Jacques de Villiers, who published a book entitled, What If Hollywood Doesn't Call? A Fractured Monk's Guide to Enlightenment. I'm about halfway through Jacques' work and I am loving it. Written in beautiful vignettes that are accessible, immensely enjoyable, and at times self-deprecating for the purpose of teaching a lesson, I am struggling to put the book down. If you're looking for a great read, check it out on Amazon. It's called What If Hollywood Doesn't Call? A Fractured Monk's Guide to Enlightenment. No commissions, no royalties for me, just a friendly shout out. So okay, let's get this show rocking. The late, great Stephen Hawking had a quote about language that I'd like to share with you. He said, quote, For millions of years, mankind lived just like the animals. Then something happened that unleashed the power of our imagination. We learned to talk. We learned to listen. Speech has allowed the communication of ideas, enabling human beings to work together to build the impossible. Mankind's greatest achievements have come about by talking, and its greatest failures by not talking. It doesn't have to be like this. Our greatest hopes could become reality in the future. With technology at our disposal, the possibilities are unbounded. All we need to do is make sure we keep talking. End quote. Or do we? <laughs> But aren't those words beautiful? I mean, I love the idea of unbounded possibilities, and I love the spirit of the words as they relate to cooperation and growth through communication, particularly communication through speech. But I'm about to put forth an idea that serves as an alternative opinion to what Stephen Hawking, a man whose mind I revere, once said. You see, I'd like to consider the possibility that perhaps language isn't the reason for mankind's greatest achievements, as Hawking puts it. I'd like to consider the possibility that perhaps language is one of the primary culprits in determining our view of life, which potentially paves the way for the direction in which we're proceeding largely as a society. That direction is symbolic of the way we think and see the world in contrast to other potentialities that might provide a different way of seeing our place in the world. The whole notion of greatest achievements, after all, is completely relative and must be based on our worldview, which, as I'm about to argue, may well be a product of the language we use to navigate it. Hey, does that sound like a fun topic? I think so. So let's do it. 
To what extent has language influenced our worldview, if at all? And to what extent does language influence our worldview, if at all? Little hint. I've deliberately phrased those two questions in a very similar manner, but with a slight twist. I'm about to shed some light on the nuances between the two ways of phrasing that very interesting question. It occurred to me a few days ago after I learned something fascinating about a certain language that the way in which we communicate as a society must have a notable influence on the way in which we view the world. Here's one small example in the context of a home. Imagine you grew up in a home in which rabbits, yes, that's right, those fluffy, four-legged, hopping creatures, were seen as evil. Imagine that every time a rabbit was mentioned in the home, it was described using the most vile adjectives, such as that evil rabbit, or that destructive rabbit or even those disgusting rabbits. If that's all you'd ever heard growing up on the topic of rabbits, I'm inclined to believe that you'd think that rabbits are terrible. That would probably color the way in which you view rabbits, don't you think? That's a teeny tiny example that only pertains to rabbits. But what if the language we use every day had a similar effect on something that's a little more prevalent than rabbits? Something like how we view time, space, and matter. Let me explain. The Hopi are a Native American tribe who primarily live on the Hopi Reservation in northeastern Arizona, according to Wikipedia. Interestingly, the Hopi tribe is a sovereign nation within the United States, and I had no idea such a thing existed until I began my research for this episode. It turns out that they have a native language that's remarkably different from the language I'm speaking right now and the majority of Western civilization's many languages. I'll share a few examples. To begin with, in English and in most languages, we pluralize units of time in the same way that we pluralize nouns. In Hopi, time is never pluralized, which makes the observation of time much more subjective. Here's a concrete example. In English, we might say, I spent two days farming. Whereas in Hopi, they would say, I finished farming on the second day. The difference may not jump out at you immediately, but in English, the time period, two days, is objectified, which means that the time is expressed in a concrete form. By contrast, in Hopi, the time period is subsumed, meaning that the time period is included as part of a larger group and not considered something separate. Let's drill deeper into that, because I really want you to understand this nuance. When we say, I spent two days farming, the two days part is an entity of its own. It's a unit of time that's disconnected from everything else, even though we know that the speaker is talking about farming. By contrast, I finished farming on the second day makes the period of time a continuum 
in which the adjacent elements, in this case farming and two days, are not perceptibly different from each other. Now, this isn't the easiest concept to grasp because if you're listening to this podcast, then you are likely raised with the viewpoint that time is a separate entity from objects and ourselves. But this wouldn't necessarily be the case if you were raised Hopi. This is the basis upon which I'm beginning to question how and why we see the world in a certain way. In Western society, we're pretty mechanistic, something I've spent a fair amount of time exploring in other episodes, meaning that we like to separate everything into individual parts, whereas there's more of a holistic viewpoint in other societies, like the Hopi society. Let's keep on going by exploring nouns for a couple of minutes. Yes, that's right, as in the nouns we study in grammar class. When I was younger, I was taught that a noun is a person, place, or thing. Well, that still holds true today, but there are a few more things that qualify as nouns, though I won't get into them today. However, I'd like to make the distinction between discrete nouns and mass nouns. A discrete noun is something that can be counted, like a cat, which is pluralized as cats, while a mass noun is generally something that can't be counted, like the air or the water. You wouldn't say, I have waters in my cup. Instead, you'd say, I have water in my cup, which is a way of reducing the noun to a singular entity. In Hopi, all nouns can be pluralized. Thus, there's no need to bring attention to the container or the vessel in which they reside. Isn't that cool? The Hopi language puts much more emphasis on the primary object of one's focus instead of diluting the thoughts with extraneous information. Stick with me here, because this is where it gets really fun. In Hopi, there are no Verb tenses. Yes, that's right. I'm probably going to have to explain why I find that so darn cool. In English, the present tense is a unit of time. It's the present. It's what's happening now. And that unit of time is sandwiched between two other units of time called the past and the future. The ramification of such an organization of language is that there's no other way to conceptualize time but in a linear fashion. Furthermore, when time is viewed in this way, we are literally degrading the status of time to object status, which is what is meant by objectifying something. But in my view, time is a very subjective entity that's tied to perception and relativity, perhaps more similar to the way in which the Hopi see it as well. What's interesting, if you're following this fascinating line of discussion, is that we are doomed to continue experiencing time in a linear and objective way because our language pushes us into that viewpoint. Kind of like a glass pushes water into a certain shape. Thus, the very shape of our viewpoint in many cases may well be defined by the constraints placed upon it by language. This isn't to say that the Hopi tribe have zero concept of linear time. 
but their language may be directing them to think of the relationship between time, space, and matter in a way that would be quite foreign to those of us that use modern languages, i.e. pretty much most of the known world. So, let's start making some connections. I'm interested in seeing the world, or the universe for that matter, in new ways, and I'm finding a degree of success in that pursuit when I eschew the use of language. Please explain that, Alex. Okay. There are two ways that I'm able to alter my viewpoint to such an extent that my understanding is based on something outside of knowledge through language. The first way is through meditation. When I meditate these days, I find that I'm downloading information in a similar way to how I use the internet. When it comes to the internet and I'm researching information for, say, a new podcast episode, I look up very specific pieces of information and then download that info through my internet connection. Sometimes I download a PDF report, sometimes I come across interesting web pages, and sometimes I'll find a cool YouTube video that does a great job of explaining something. But you see, all of these downloads are language-based. I get to learn about the very thing about which I'm inquiring, but it comes in a very specific container that I'll call language. You see, I must absorb the information through the vessel in which it's carried. Again, the vessel being language. But when I meditate these days, I often find myself seeing or feeling the answers to challenges that present themselves. Oftentimes, there's no language that accompanies these flashes of insight. Just a clear picture of, say, a next step. The more exciting the vision is, the more I know that I need to pay attention. The ideas transcend language and have, more often than not, proved to be pivotal revelations in my journey. The second way in which I'm able to alter my viewpoint is by observing the world around me. This includes observing the people in my life. Oftentimes, people's actions are so transparent that words are not necessary. I see that play out in beautiful ways, and sometimes in malicious ways. But here's one of the beautiful ways. Just the other day, we were given some stunning sunflowers and a basket of delicious grapes by a friend that came to visit. My family's inspired by nature and health, and I couldn't think of a better gift than the flowers and the grapes. This was a thoughtful gift of friendship and love. My observation of the action wasn't limited to an interpretation of the act through language. Rather, it was seen from the source of love. And since you already know that I view love as energy, then you'll know that my interpretation of receiving a thoughtful gift is that I am interacting directly with pure energy. No words necessary. Just the truth. What a beautiful way to see the world, isn't it? I'd argue that all gestures are an expression of energy. I'd also argue that the spoken word through language is also an expression of energy, though it's being delivered in a vessel, which takes us one step further from the source. Now, does that mean that language is useless? No, of course not. I wouldn't have a successful podcast if that were the case. 
I'm simply saying that I believe language plays a significant role in contextualizing the viewpoint through which we process the message. I'm also suggesting that there are more ways to learn about life and to experience it than through traditional education that comes in the form of language. Let's have a quick look at another fascinating language, the classical South Asian language of Sanskrit. Did you know that in Sanskrit, there are very few words for objects? By contrast, modern languages are built on the principle that words represent objects and entities. For example, in English, a tree is a tree. But technically, there is no word for tree in Sanskrit. So you're probably wondering, well, how the heck do you refer to a tree in Sanskrit then? Well, you would do that by describing the properties of the tree. There is a word that's used to describe a tree, but a loose translation of that word means something that is cut and felled. Interestingly, you could use other words to describe a tree, such as something that floats or something that drinks with its feet. And now you may be thinking to yourself, well, that's just clumsy. But I'm going to posit that it's actually genius. Think about it. Every time something new is invented, using the modern language of English, we have to invent a new word to describe it. But in Sanskrit, you would simply articulate the properties of the new invention and your audience would be able to understand what it does or what purpose it serves. There are at least two unbelievable advantages to this system. One, you rarely, if ever, have to consult a dictionary if you understand Sanskrit grammar. And number two, the language provides an infinite amount of possibilities to describe an infinite amount of objects or entities. Tell me that's not beautiful. It reminds me of mathematics in the sense that there are literally infinite mathematical equations that will net you the solution you're looking for. Talk about a language of unlimited expression. Now that is worthy of some thought. So, to bring this episode full circle, has talking really led to humankind's greatest achievements? Or has it narrowed our viewpoints, created confusion, and led to the ability to deliberately or indeliberately spread misinformation? Has modern language objectified our experiences to such an extent that we are disconnected from the actual experience? Do we know for certain that our civilization that receives information primarily through communication is happier than those that didn't or don't have internet, books, television, radio, smartphones, newspapers, or magazines? I'm not sure. But I can tell you that the moments in which I am most fulfilled are the ones in which I'm experiencing life, in which words aren't necessary. They are the moments that I look around and notice that my connection to everything around me is the essence of being. They are the moments in which feeling is the truest representation of what I'm experiencing. 
It's during these moments that I often wish that I could take my emotions and insert them in a loved one's heart so that they too can feel what I do. But I'm going to tell you a little secret. I've recently discovered that every time I allow myself to feel something so intensely in the presence of my life partner, I don't require any words in order to share the moment. What I've discovered is that my feelings are reflected right back at me in a way that makes me understand that communication doesn't always require language. Sometimes it just requires faith. Hey, thanks for supporting my podcast and for reflecting the love and admiration I have for you. It's an honor to learn, to grow, and to share my discoveries with you. And always know that I appreciate you. Thank you.